the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Uh, tonight, we're talking to Dr. Daniel Magus, a returning guest, uh, to talk to us about what's going on with COVID that we're, uh, we have been struggling through for the last year now. Uh, Dr. Magus, thank you, as always, for joining us. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, we, we've made it through the uh, the pandemic to some degree. We're in a vaccination stage. How is that going right now? Very well. It's a year into the pandemic declaration by the World Health Organization. Now, in Ohio, we've had a, a million, nearly a million cases, 17,000 deaths. But the incidence of new cases and the deaths is, is definitely decreasing dramatically in Ohio. Very, very good signs. Uh, that is the, that the infection is starting to become under control. Um, there's a lot of news since you and I spoke last. Uh, most of it very good. 31 million shots of uh, vaccinated people in America were vaccinated completely. There's 92 million doses of vaccine that were given totally. And the CDC has already recommended starting to begin relaxing some of their restrictions especially for those who are fully vaccinated, and also for visiting nursing homes. So those are all good signs. Um, in, in Ohio, uh, Governor DeWine is opening up vaccinations now to younger people, even down to the age of 50. And um, uh, he has all kinds of uh, extra sites available set up, including uh, the Wolfstein Center, uh, the design to help people who are indigent, living in the, near the inner cities, and uh, unable to um, to uh, provide transportation so that they can walk to get their shots. Because it's going to be very important to uh, get all the community neighborhoods vaccinated really to get this under control. So there's a lot of good things going on. There are three vaccines now besides the Pfizer and the Moderna, which have to be given um, 21 and 28 days apart um, with two doses, respectively, uh, the, the Johnson & Johnson. Uh, is now making a big, big difference. Only one dose is necessary. It's not quite as effective, but it's 85% effective in preventing severe diseases and, and uh, hospitalizations and death. So that's what you want it to do in the first place. So that's why the FDA approved it, and uh, it's uh, making a, a big difference in getting people vaccinated much, much quicker. Should people uh, hesitate to take the Johnson & Johnson? Uh, opposed to the other two, or should they gravitate more toward Johnson and Johnson? Or uh, if you have a shot story? available, I I would recommend you just uh, go and get it. We don't have enough data head to head to know for sure if one is better than others. Maybe one in one population, another in another population. That data just isn't out there. Um, we need to get people vaccinated, vaccinated fast, especially with these new variants showing up. Uh, the UK and the uh, 
um, the, the South African variant are uh, are present in the U.S. and present in Ohio. There's a new one in Oregon, a new uh, mutant um, that is uh, mutated from the uh, U.K. one. Um, and it um, definitely has decreased sensitivity to the vaccine. So we need to be get people vaccinated as much as possible and as fast as possible before these mutant um, viruses really take over the population. The reason they emerge is because they undergo mutations that have some kind of um, uh, uh, advantage um, uh, in their, uh, in their, in their uh, replication. And they have a survival advantage, so they tend to overtake the uh, the other viruses that are, are older and more traditional. You know, as, as we talk about the um, the different types of vaccines, is there anything the average person should know concerning what they might expect if they have the Johnson and Johnson opposed to having the Moderna or the Pfizer? Uh, such as, are they more likely to catch the COVID nineteen? And if so, how will that affect them? You said probably no hospitalizations, probably no uh, deaths. But what about like the long hauler symptoms, they call it, that some people have with lung involvement and so on? Well, yeah, there's no question about it. They're, they're all safe and fairly, fairly effective. They're all safe and effective. The allergic reactions are very low, 2%. They do not interfere with the genetics. You do not get the disease from them. There's no live virus injected inside you. Um, there's all kinds of, in the uh, immigration communities and in the um, undocumented um, alien um, communities, there's a lot of fear that and rumors going around that the government is going to inject some kind of a microchip into you and be able to uh, monitor where you are so they can deport you. Things like this just don't happen. Uh, basically, they're all safe and effective. Very rare is the um, uh, the anaphylaxis, like 0.02%, 0.03% with the Pfizer and the, and the Moderna causing severe reactions uh, of anaphylaxis. And and those are very, very rare. So, um, uh, and it, they're all about, for the most part, they're all have to be assumed to be about the same and on equal par. It's nice to be able to get by with one vaccination. The Johnson and Johnson, although the CDC defines complete vaccination two weeks after you got the dose, it looks like the antibody response continues to improve over one to two months after you get the Johnson and Johnson. So that's one of the reasons why they limit it to one dose. Well, that's interesting. I haven't heard that before. So. Let's say uh, one month or two months after the Johnson and Johnson uh, vaccination, the efficacy could be higher than seventy yeah. some percent. Yeah. Well, for a while there, there was there was um, possible um, uh, this was the possible need to give a second injection one or two months later, but it looks like the uh, the vaccine is good enough after two weeks, and then even possibly more effective after one to two months. So um, for that reason, the FDA said, let's go with it. And um, I think it's a game changer. It's improving dramatically how many people can get vaccinated at one time. And, and, and DeWine is uh, um, yeah, increasing the vaccination sites all over, just like they are in Florida, where I am today. And um, it's, uh, it makes a big, big difference. 
But as you mentioned, there are about 31 million people vaccinated. And uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, with that, that's about 10 percent of the population. How far do we go for herd, human, uh, herd immunity yet? Well, that's a good question, because uh, some of these variants are, um, are springing up all over the country in various areas. And um, that's, that's a bit of a game changer. Uh, that's why even once vaccinated, once you're vaccinated, you got to be careful. You still have to observe some mitigation strategies. Um, there was a the mortality um, world report showed that mask the mask mandates when uh, when um, instituted decreased the uh, number of cases and death rates um, by day 20. And those states that opened up their restaurants completely accelerated the amount of kept the cases of death through through um, 60 to 80 days. Now they're small, like two and three percent, but they definitely do make a difference. And um, because it'll take a while to get herd immunity, maybe 60, 70 percent, um, will um, people do have to be somewhat careful. Now. The CDC has made recommendations. Once you're fully vaccinated, um, restrictions, if you're meeting with small groups of fully vaccinated individuals indoors, uh, the masks don't seem to be necessary to make a difference. If you, if you um, are exposed as somebody indoors and fully vaccinated, but you have somebody you're meeting with who's unvaccinated, there's a potential risk there. If you have asymptomatic colonization in the nose. We're still not sure whether the vaccines protect against this. Two days ago, I read the report from the CEO of Pfizer, and he reported the Israeli study that showed 94% protection and prevention of asymptomatic colonization once you're vaccinated. If that's true, that is a game changer and makes it much safer for people who are vaccinated to associate it with both vaccinated people and unvaccinated. I'm not sure the CDC will act on that study and make a new recommendation until they get more data here in the U.S. But that is very optimistic information coming from Israel. A number of the states are opening up, and that may cause additional problems if we're going to see new spikes coming up because of the premature opening of the different states like um, Texas and so on. But we're going to take a short break. We're talking to Dr. Daniel Vegas okay. concerning COVID and what's happening now with the vaccination programs in full swing. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. We'll be right back. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to Dr. Daniel Magus concerning the COVID situation and the vaccination proceedings and how we're opening up the country slowly and carefully. And uh, Dr. Magus, again, thank you, as always, for joining us. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. You know, as we're talking about reopening and trying to get back to normal because of the vaccine and the vaccination rates, uh, you're down in Florida now. What does it look like down there with 
people, the warmer weather, outdoor dining, that kind of thing. Uh, how how normal does it feel? Well, uh, as more and more people get vaccinated, it's safer and safer. <clears throat> Most of the outdoor uh, dining is um, is uh, along the waterfront, and there's a fair amount of breeze that make it much safer. It's indoors that you do have to be very, very careful with. And uh, as I mentioned and kind of alluded to, um, there is definite data that those uh, those uh, states that have opened up their restaurants fully, indoors and outdoors, have started have spiked a, uh, a gradual acceleration of cases of COVID and deaths of COVID about 60 days to 80 days after they open up completely. So there's a little bit of a risk. And with these new variants that are uh, that are starting to spring up, it's important to get people vaccinated as soon as possible. However, in the meantime, to make sure you're not spreading it, um, it uh, it's a good idea to still be somewhat careful. Um, even the Moderna and the, and the uh, Pfizer vaccines being only 94, 95% effective allows you to actually get colonized and actually potentially um, transmit uh, the virus. So uh, it's not 100%. And um, if you have a if you're indoors... Excuse me. We'll come back to that that part. I have a question from what you just mentioned concerning if you are fully vaccinated and you come into contact with someone who's infected with COVID, oh, how will that uh, virus act upon you, the vaccinated individual? Uh, you'll colonize it, well, maybe, or you'll get symptoms, well, or what, what can you expect? Well, here's what we know. It, it's going to, um, when you're exposed to it, you have antibodies and T cells that are immune uh, to the virus, and they'll attach to the virus and stop it from entering cells. So 95% of the time, the virus, is, the uh, vaccine is protective in preventing the virus that you take in, breathe in, to getting into the cells and replicate. If you inhale 100 viruses, but none of it gets in the cells. It's quickly disposed of and gotten rid of. The disease occurs once the virus enters the cells and multiplies, and there's millions and millions of virus floating around in the bloodstream. That's when it infects the cells and causes an infectious disease. Now, if your, your antibodies and T-cell immunity block the virus from getting in cells, you totally blocked it. And, it's, and the Moderna and Pfizer Vaccines are 95% effective in preventing virus to getting into any of your cells and replicating there. Now, that means a small number of people can still uh, get the disease, but it seems to be very mild. But even then, they're potentially uh, going to be able to transmit it. So if you, uh, if you're, if you're, if, if you are vaccinated and you're exposed to somebody with, with COVID, um, the CDC recommends no quarantine. But if, as soon as you get symptoms, if you're one of the four or five percent who are going to get mild symptoms, even though you're vaccinated, once exposed to a COVID patient, if you have symptoms, then you have to quarantine as usual. Uh, and so that some people will still have to do that. Now, if you have herd immunity and the virus actually just dies down and quits spreading, um, these cases of asymptomatic spread like that will become fewer and fewer. Um, those people who are vaccinated, uh, the fear is, can you be exposed to the virus and colonize the nose, not get sick, 
but then being able to transmit it if you sneeze and cough on somebody. Up until now, we have seen IgA antibodies in the nasal mucosa, which is where you want to find them. And we have IgA antibodies in the bloodstream. Those are the antibodies that stop asymptomatic spread. So theoretically, there's reason to believe that these vaccines may stop asymptomatic spread and asymptomatic colonization. And like I said, just recently, the study in Israel confirmed, at least in Israel, that the Pfizer COVID vaccine does prevent asymptomatic colonization and spread. Hopefully, uh, the data in the U.S. will confirm that, and the CDC will give recommendations accordingly. I have a, another question that this raises, and that is, uh, with the number of people who've been vaccinated so far, we have over 30 million, but we've had almost the same amount with regard to people who have actually had an infection with COVID-19, uh, and, and some of them are not getting vaccinated. They believe that they're immune because of their antibodies they developed during their experience. Uh, how safe are they without vaccination? Um, some people who have had it have very little uh, anti-spike antibodies. Uh, the, the preliminary studies have shown that if you have been infected and you have the anti-spike antibodies, you have a very robust uh, increase on the, uh, on the antibodies uh, after one dose of Moderna or Pfizer. Uh, for those who have been infected, recovered, and has, some have very little uh, and uh, very little antibody. Number one, they're at risk of getting it again. Now, again, reinfections seem to be uncommon. I can't give you a number. They seem to be uncommon, but they do occur. When those people who are seronegative after recovering from COVID because they just don't produce very much antibody, they have a very disjointed uh, uh, antibody response after one dose of, uh, of the uh, messenger RNA vaccine. They need the second dose to get a, uh, uh, a protective level. So um, those people who have recovered eventually, although they're at lower risk, um, probably are better off getting a vaccination rather than not. Well, very interesting, because that begs another question. When we talk about herd immunity and we talk about the, counting the heads of people who are immune, we, we could combine, I would imagine, the people who have already had COVID-19 and the people who are vaccinated. And, <clears throat> and as we put them together, uh, we increase our percentages, maybe up to around 20% nowadays. Yeah. Uh, can yeah. that get us to herd immunity sooner? Uh, it's hard to say because um, uh, we, we've, got to, we've got to vaccinate at least 60 70% of the country. 25% of our population in this country is under age 18. Um, none of these, uh, the Pfizer is, uh, is, um, is approved by the FDA for 16 and over and Moderna 18 and over. What we may have to do is actually, uh, find a way to vaccinate our, our adolescents and maybe the older children. Um, studies are just starting to, to, to study what happens when we inoculate people under the age of 18. Um, it may be necessary to, um, to inoculate and vaccinate those people eventually to get rid of the virus. Now, of course, the, uh, the higher risk, the older people are the ones most important. They're the ones most likely to get symptoms, most likely to be admitted to the hospital, and most likely to die. So we're vaccinating the correct people right now. Um, 
And it, it took a while before we had influenza vaccines that were safe in the children and even in the pregnant females. One good thing that we found out that um, when we um, pregnant females who um, uh, get COVID are sicker and have um, uh, worse outcomes than people who are not pregnant. Um, and um, when they are get their vaccination, not only do they get good antibody response, but when they're when they deliver their but their their babies, the uh, the needle natal cord blood is positive for an antibody, showing that the vaccine has caused antibodies in the cord blood of the fetus, which protects the baby from getting it in utero and at shortly afterwards. Now this happens in influenza and pertussis, and uh, we're very happy to find it to find that uh, the, the neonates, when they're, when they're born, um, they do have exposure to some antibody level and have some immunity to COVID-19 because their mother got vaccinated. So that's another reason why pregnant women should not be afraid to get it and should be encouraged to get it, the vaccine. Well, we'll be watching how that develops over the next weeks and months here because as we start entering springtime up here in the north, and starts uh, getting warmer and outdoor dining becomes more popular, hopefully we'll be returning back to uh, something more normal in, in our lifestyle. But uh, like to There's no question Dan about Vegas. it. Dining oh, outdoors is far safer because the air just carries the virus away. But eventually, as more and more people get vaccinated, it's safer and safer to be indoors. Amen for that. Well, we'll keep an eye on yep. it. We'll have you on next month to give us another update on what's happening. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me. You take care and have a good day. My, my pleasure. And thank you. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words with another segment of The Advocate. Don't go away. We'll be right back. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Cleveland, Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, in the next two segments, we're going to be talking about a volunteer opportunity that you can have if you want to make a difference with regard to the young people here in the Northern Ohio area. And with us tonight to talk about it is Tricia. Uh, and it's uh, Tricia, if I can get your name pronounced properly, it's Kuvenen. Is that correct? It's very, it's very close, Nick. It's actually Kuvenen, like it would be spelled with a Q. So Queen Queen and it's, mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Well, you're with a group that uh, the acronym is CASA, or do you pronounce it CASA? It's pronounced CASA, yes. CASA, and that stands for? CASA is an acronym that stands for Courts Appointed Special Advocates. And uh, these are community-based volunteers that are given a courts appointment order to be involved in the life of a vulnerable child, typically a child that's in the foster care system. Now, why, why do we need CASA and why do we need these advocates and what uh, difference are they making? That's a really great question. So CASA was started uh, many, many years ago, back in the late 70s, actually by a judge in Seattle, Washington, who tried a lot of juvenile cases and worked with many, many children in the foster care system out in Washington state. He became convinced that these children needed more um, influence in their lives from caring 
community-based adults. Uh, most of these children had a social worker, they had an attorney, um, and yet he still saw that children were not being very well served. And he thought that there could be a role for ordinary people to play in the lives of vulnerable children, um, essentially as advocates. Um, somebody who would come alongside the child and help with the child's case, help with finding resources that could benefit the child and their family, speaking up for the child's needs in court, um, being an advocate for the child at school, uh, at their doctor's office, and um, any other place where services were being delivered to children. Um, these child welfare cases can be very complex, and sometimes they start to languish, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, there's so many complexities to them that um, having an additional advocate that can continually call the different case parties um, you know, to the child's account and basically say, uh, as forcefully as possible, this is what this child needs, this is what would benefit this child, um, let's do a better job collectively serving this child. And so that's really the role of the CASA, is to be that child's advocate. Now, we've we've heard uh, the phrase uh, in another program called uh, guardian ad litem. Is this different than that, and is it supplemental yes. to that? Great question. Well, what's the difference? So in it is different. Um, typically, guardian ad litems uh, are attorneys. Um, it is possible to be a guardian ad litem in some parts of the United States without being an attorney. Um, it's do you also need to be an attorney some... to be a, to be a CASA? Do you have to be an attorney? No, you do not. Um, I'll okay. explain the requirements for CASA a little later in the interview if I can. Sure. But you do not have to be an attorney to be a CASA. Okay. Um, so. The the roles are, are similar and yet different. You know, a, a guardian ad litem is appointed by the court to represent the child's best interest in the legal sense. So the guardian ad litem um, handles the child's legal case and uh, can file motions with the court, for example, to have the child placed in a certain foster home, to have services ordered for the child, um, those kinds of things. The CASA is more of the advocate for the child in the sense of the other services, in other words, not the legal services. So the CASA comes alongside and essentially complements the work of the guardian ad litem. Um, attorneys are busy, and often uh, the courts will only pay them uh, so much for so many hours to serve a child, and yet a child has many, many needs that the attorney can't meet. So the CASA will come alongside the attorney and essentially augment the work of the attorney as well as the social workers and the other people that are involved in the child's life. Um, so it's a complementary role. It is not the same thing. However, in some courts and in some communities, the CASA can serve also as the guardian ad litem. Um, so it just depends on how the programs are set up. Um, they can be unique and different to local courts. In Cuyahoga County, um, we have both roles, so the, the guardian ad litems are attorneys, and then the CASAs typically are not attorneys, and yet both are appointed to the same child's case. Well, this is, it's very interesting. I'm an attorney, and I've been an attorney for many years, and in working with juveniles in the juvenile court system, I know that uh, all the attorneys I know, when they're involved in cases, are very, very busy. They don't have they don't have time to sit down and chat you know, exactly. casually on a regular basis. Uh, so when we talk about uh, the advocate, the CASA, so providing for the needs of the child, what kind of needs that aren't being met in other programs does this program actually fill in the difference? Yeah, great question. So first and foremost, the CASA conducts an investigation. What that means typically is the CASA goes to the child's home, 
or the foster home where the child is staying. Um, sometimes children are also in residential care, so they may be at an agency where they live because they're receiving some kind of mental health or substance abuse treatment. The CASA begins an investigation as to what exactly is going on with the child. They talk to parents, caregivers, uh, counselors, doctors, teachers, to try to create a, a picture of what's going on with children. Um, if you think of sort of like uh, pieces of a puzzle that are coming together, uh, the cast is looking at all the pieces and saying, where does all this fit together and what's really going on with this child? What's the landscape? Um, the CASA can request records, for example, medical records, school records, um, records from counseling agencies or other organizations that might be serving the child. And the CASA visits the child in their own home. They visit the child at school. Um, they may visit the child in other community-based settings, and from that, they begin to compile a picture of what's really going on in the child's life, and from that, they can help to determine, you know, what's missing, what's lacking in the approach to that child's case, and begin to work to deliver services, um, find additional resources, as well as speak up for the child when, if the child has a persistent need, for example, that is not being met. So the first role of the CASA is to investigate. The second role of the CASA is to monitor. So once there's a case plan for children that typically are under the court's uh, care, the CASA plays a role in ensuring that the case plan is being met. And so, again, they check in on the child, on the case parties, on the services that are being delivered. For example, if a parent is court-ordered to go to parenting classes, uh, it might be the CASA that actually monitors that to some extent, ensures that the parent attends, uh, talks to the parent about the skills that they're learning, talks to the parent about the case plan and what they might have to do to get their child back. Um, the CASA might also monitor things like school attendance or school performance. Um, they might monitor things like whether or not the family is attending counseling appointments. And so in that sense, the CASA continues to monitor what is going on in the case and ensure that certain aspects of the case and the case plan are being met. Um, the third thing that a CASA does is report. The CASA is a legal party to the case, and as such, they are required to compile and submit court reports. And so uh, depending on what's going on with a child and when the next hearing is scheduled, the CASA will compile a report about what they have found out. They will include uh, aspects of the monitoring, for example, how many times they visit the child, uh, how many records they've been able to secure, what kind of uh, behaviors they've been able to observe, for example, when they see the parent and the child together. Do they see loving, attentive behaviors that would show that the parent's engaged, um, or do they see a parent who um, you know, cannot relate to the child emotionally, maybe doesn't comfort the child, those kinds of things. And they put all of those observations into a court report, which they then provide to the jurist, um, and the jurist will consider that report and potentially uh, use it in, in their determinations about what is in the child's best interest. Well, you're a great person to interview. Uh, I don't have to ask you a bunch of questions. You actually filled in a whole lot for me, but <laughs> you have raised other questions for me. Sure. And uh, sure. So, so, for example, um, a volunteer, meaning they don't get paid, but how much time are they expected to put into this? It sounds like there's a personal relationship you develop with the assigned child, and the well, there, advocate, there really is. being a nice person, really is going to is. want that. You're going to want that child to succeed. So, how how much time have you been seeing your your casas put in? 
Well, every program is a little different in their expectations of how many hours, but uh, we ask our volunteers here in Cuyahoga County to invest 10 hours a month in either visiting, um, requesting records, monitoring, investigating, and writing up their reports for the child. Um, we ask them to visit the child in person at least twice a month, um, and then the rest of the 10 hours can be spent on these other activities. Um, other programs may vary. Um, additionally, as the case goes on, you have a situation where sometimes the CASA doesn't spend as much time because a lot of the investigation has been completed, and now it's just more about the monitoring and the reporting. I see. So I it see. varies. Well, let's, yeah, let's, hold, it varies. let's hold up here for a moment. We're going to take a break. Sure. Uh, we're, uh, we're talking about CASAs, which are advocates for children, court-appointed advocates. And we're talking to Tricia from CASA. And, we're going to be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. And we're talking to Tricia concerning CASA, uh, which is the court-appointed uh, advocates for children in juvenile court situations. So thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, oh, my talking pleasure, about CASA. Yes, well, it sounds like an interesting program. Are most of the people who are volunteers, are they older people with, with time on their hands so they can, in a relaxed and, and thoughtful way, provide the help these kids need? Well, it's a range. We do have a lot of older adults and retirees for the reason you just said. They have the time. And we have a lot of people that have been in the helping professions in their careers. So, you know, teachers, nurses, um, because they have that, you know, sort of caring, um, you know, nurturing spirit and they're concerned about the welfare of children. But we also have a lot of other people that are in uh, middle age, people that are still working, and we have some young people. You know, I even had a woman on my staff uh, here in the CASA program that became a CASA herself at age 21 and um, was assigned a child and was so, um, you know, affected by her experience that she actually became a staff member of the CASA program. So it's all ages. It's people from all walks of life, all backgrounds. We have professional people. We have, you know, working class people. We have retirees. Um, it's a huge range because there's a lot of people who are interested in helping children, and um, this is a great way to do it. Are the people who are the court-appointed special advocates, you know, the term court-appointed, uh, now as an attorney when I hear court-appointed, I picture a juvenile court judge issuing an order actually naming somebody and appointing them to a role and assigning that appointed role to a particular case. Is it that formal or is it a little less formal? It that's exactly it. We have a 30-hour training program for our CASA volunteers. Ten of that is independent study, and 20 of that is in-person, in-classroom learning. We bring in um, professionally trained uh, people from all over Cuyahoga County, people in the medical fields, uh, you know, child psychology, um, legal, um, to provide that training. So we bring in a lot of subject matter experts, try to have a high-quality training to prepare our volunteers to work on these cases. And then, essentially, our authority to serve these children comes from the courts. Uh, they give us an appointment order, uh, a formal letter, 
that we then use to appoint the CASA to the case. Uh, additionally, CASAs are formally sworn in um, to serve these children. There's a ceremony where Judge Tom O'Malley, who's the administrative judge at the juvenile court right now, um, he swears each CASA volunteer in. They take an oath and uh, they are given a certificate that shows that they've been sworn in by the courts and thus are um, able to take these legal appointments to serve these children. So it is very formal, and there's a lot of structure and training and very high expectations. Uh, CASAs are expected to go mm -hmm. to hearings, um, to participate in the hearing, to provide their written report, and also to make oral reports. Uh, sometimes the jurists will call on the CASA to speak in court as to their opinion of, about what's in the child's best interest. So this really is a professional uh, volunteer opportunity. It's a big responsibility. And um, the CASA volunteer is a legal party to the child's case. Hmm. Now, when the uh, CASA, the advocate, uh, representing the he, he's basically he or she is an advocate for the child themselves, right? Correct. Correct. And so when they go about investigating and so on, do they have any type of credential or something? They, they show people to show that they are authorized? Well, because the court gives us an appointment letter, the CASA can take that with them everywhere they go, doctor's office, school. They take it with them to the, the home sometimes when they visit the child. And uh, it essentially works the same way as... Um, uh, you know, not a warrant, but it, 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 it's, a, it's a legal document that shows uh, different individuals in the child's life that the CASA has the right to request information, to receive documents, and to visit the child in person. Uh, the parent, the teacher, the other people that are involved in the child's life really can't refuse that CASA uh, access precisely because they have the court order. So each CASA is given a letter that they from the court, from the juvenile court, that they can take around with them in order to enable them to have that access. And typically, we don't have any problems. Mm. So, so, you know, this is a, a very important uh, and authoritative position because apparently if someone appears before you as a school official or as a medical person, uh, the CASA is essentially a court official in a way. Is that true? Absolutely. Absolutely. About how many CASAs do you have uh, here in Cuyahoga County? Well, over the five years of our program, we've trained uh, almost 150 CASAs. We currently have uh, about 90 active volunteers. Um, sometimes people do serve for a couple of years and they move on to other things. Uh, some people relocate out of Cleveland, they retire, um, they have other you know things that they move on to. But as a general rule, we have between 80 and 90 CASAs serving at any given time. Uh, CASAs typically take one case at a time. Uh, we do allow them to take two if they really want to do that, but typically no more than two. Um, and they can also have multiple children on a case. So, for example, they could have a sibling group, and they could be the CASA for that entire sibling group. So we serve anywhere between 100 and 150 children at a time, uh, precisely because we have the sibling groups. Um, and uh, this is the sixth year of our program. Uh, CASA started in Cuyahoga County in 2016. Uh, there were a couple previous attempts to bring CASA to Cuyahoga County uh, back in the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, they were not successful, So, uh, but a group of people who were committed to having CASA here tried again um, in 2015. They formed a steering committee um, comprised of over 40 people from different professions, and they were able to uh, put together essentially a, a program plan and bring CASA to Cuyahoga County. So we're, we're really thrilled to have 100 volunteers um, after just you know five years or so of operations. Um, CASA is a national program, and it's 
over 50 years old. Um, there are nearly a thousand CASA programs in the United States, and Cleveland was actually the last large metro area in the United States that did not have a CASA program. And so we were a little late uh, to the game, but um, we're, we, we believe that there's plenty of room for us to grow and, and scale our CASA program. I, ideally, I would love to have four or 500 volunteers available. Um, there's almost 3,000 children right now that are involved with um, Cuyahoga County Division of Children and Family Services. So there's a huge need. Oh, and wow. we would love there to have, yeah, yeah, we would love to have even more volunteers that could serve some of these children. How, how does someone volunteer if they're so inclined and, and have the time? Well, that's a great question. We try to make it as easy as possible. There's an application, of course, that they can access on our website. Um, that's cfadvocates.org. They can fill it out online. Uh, additionally, they have to go through a background check, uh, both the criminal background check and the central registry check. Um, we do that for them. And then they have to complete the 30 hours of training. Uh, of course, they have an interview. And um, it's it's pretty simple, really. It, it does take some preparation, and they have to commit to the training program. Uh, but the application is fairly simple. Uh, we can do the interviews by phone. Um, certainly during this last year with COVID, you know, we've been doing a lot more virtual um, onboarding. Of, the of course. Um, but uh, it's uh, pretty straightforward. They can just do it all online, and then they'll be interviewed by phone, and we can start the training process. Well, now I've heard psychologically uh, they've done studies where people who volunteer and actually participate and develop relationships and can actually see themselves doing good for the community and for the public at large tend to experience more satisfaction than people who are just writing a check. But if you can't actually participate because you don't have time, can people write a check or, or donate uh, to your group? Absolutely. You know, one of the questions I get all the time is, because we're a volunteer program, we probably don't have any costs. And of course, yeah, I, I was chuckle. going to ask that. My next question: I What, what costs do you have? Yeah. Well, the, we're required by law to supervise the volunteers with paid staff, and so I have to have some staff people that train and supervise the volunteers. Um, so, of course, we have the um, you know human resources costs of the staff. We also have a small office, and uh, we have to have a place to work. Um, we have insurance costs and other things that go along with running a program of this type. So we have about a half a million, but uh, half a million dollar budget actually um, to run wow. this volunteer program. Yeah, so we have quite a bit of grant funding. We have some funding from the U.S. Department of Justice um, through the Victims of Crime Act, um, but we do have some expenses every year that aren't covered by those grants. And so, of course, we we seek and we welcome the donations of individuals and companies to support uh, the CASA program. Wow. Well, the CASA program, CASA, C-A-S-A. Stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. You do not have to be a lawyer, yet you can make a difference with the thousands of young children uh, here in Cuyahoga County that that need help. So, Trisha, thank you so much for joining us tonight, and telling us about Casa. Oh, it's my pleasure, Nick. Thanks for having us on. My pleasure, also. So, take care, and we'll we'll follow up with you again in several months and see how you're doing. So thank you. Well, and thank you for listening tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great, safe, and healthy week. Good night. Torn from the pages of some ancient magazine. Sleeping parrot.
dreaming her a dream. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint tea, with nothing to do until morning, and only my mind accompanied me.